We'll read the first 11 verses, pray, and then commence uh, a study of this passage. First Corinthians chapter six, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning, concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do look uh, with anticipation to that day when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, the last trump shall be sounded, and the dead in Christ shall be raised. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, draw away our hearts and affections to hope and expect and live for that blessed day when we shall be raised up and be in thy holy presence. Father, as we pilgrim here, we pray that you would guide us and instruct us, even out of this chapter here that we have before us. So we pray for wisdom, we pray for light, we pray for the same Holy Spirit that sanctified, washed, and justified us to be at work among us here today to enlighten the eyes of our understanding and our faith to grow and to be stretched that we might live for thy honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I often begin a sermon with some kind of introduction that some of you, no doubt, might scratch your heads and see no relevance or connection to the sermon, but I hope at some point you do. <clears throat> Today I have the, the trouble of having four lines of introduction <laughs> that I, I can't decide on, so I'm going to give you them all briefly. Our brother alluded to the fact that we are to be a church and a people who are always reforming. This is what is sometimes called Reformation Sunday because it is the Sunday closest uh, to the occasion when we remember the start of the Reformation back in 1517. 
but we do always want to be a people always reforming, or as the Latin phrase, semper reformata, that we always want to be reforming and not content and stuck in the traditions Jesus warned us about there in Matthew chapter 15. Second line of introduction is this. If you drive around the neighborhood here, you might see an interesting bumper sticker that says, more dogs, less people. More dogs, less people. We live in the midst of a very liberal city and amidst of a, a number of liberal idiots, really, to make such a statement and to think in such terms. We can agree with them, however. We can find some common ground in saying this, man is the problem. Man is the problem. Sinful man is the problem. Dogs aren't really the problem. We don't have to worry about dogs, but the same liberals who advocate for less people with the fear that we're going to chew up and use all the resources in the world have increased the number of dogs in our country by one and a half times in the last five years. So there's some 90 million dogs in our country eating up our resources. Now, I'm not complaining about that at all because we see in the goodness and kindness of God that he time and again increases the resources and supplies not only the righteous, but also upon the wicked he makes his sun to shine. Third line of introduction here is a warning about the dangers and temptations of the legal profession of being a lawyer, especially a defense attorney. You will see the relevance as we get into the passage. But there's a great danger of trying to be such an advocate, such a defender of a client, that we transgress the lines of ethical faithfulness. And that can happen all too often when the defense attorney will defend himself by saying, well, I'm doing all I can in advocacy for my client. But if we have a guilty client, as a Christian, we can't very well defend his guiltiness. So there are great dangers and temptations in the legal profession. But fourthly and finally, and I would say most importantly, as we come to this passage, we have those famous words, and such were some of you, and such were some of you. It is the hinge, it is the apex, the center verse that captures our hearts and thrills our sanctified imagination in that it encapsulates in that little phrase the grace of God that changed us, that took us from what we were and made us something new. Not that he's finished, but that was the beginning point. And we always want to hear those words with rejoicing and telling, not only re with reference to ourselves, but all the people of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Today we want to try to get through the first 11 verses of this chapter using this following outline. And it's going to be easy because they're all double Ds. All double Ds. First of all, we want to look at a daring disregard. A daring disregard. Secondly, a deliberate diplomacy. A deliberate diplomacy. Third, a deceptive deficiency. A deceptive deficiency. Fourthly, a dreadful declaration, a dreadful declaration. And fifthly, a demonstrable 
deliverance, a demonstrable deliverance. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 6 and just read the first verse with me. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? This first verse begins with an arresting and startling question. The word order in Greek is reflected well in my New King James. The first word there is dare. Dare. Dare any of you. Dare any of you. There's an emphasis there. Are any of you so bold? Are any of you so audacious that you would take your brother to court before the unrighteous? The word dare, I think, is a good translation, and most of your English translations will will maintain that word dare. All the major translations use that. The word is used elsewhere of those who ceased from asking Jesus any more questions. They dared not, or as the old King James says, they durst not ask him any more questions. They got to a point when Jesus answered all their objections and all their questions, they saw that it would be presumptuous and bold and daring beyond measure to ask him any more questions. It is used of those in Acts chapter 5 who witnessed the Lord striking dead Ananias and Sapphira for their lying to the Holy Spirit. And then it says that the rest dared not join their company. They dared not join the company of the saints because they were so fearful of how serious the liabilities were of being a member of Christ's church and then being unfaithful in that charge, in that responsibility. It is used in Jude of the archangel Michael, who dared not to bring a railing accusation against the devil, against Satan, when they disputed about the body of Moses. He dared not to bring a railing accusation. So what, what is it that they were daring to do here in 1 Corinthians? What was it they were daring and so bold and audacious to go ahead and proceed to do that Paul is so troubled by it, he says, dare any of you, how dare any of you to do this? Up to now, Paul has been dealing with several issues he had become aware of in the church. We'll remember some of those. The divisions, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, all the divisions going on. The immoral man that he dealt with in the previous chapter, chapter 5. The wisdom of the world and how it had captivated their hearts and drawn so many of them away. And he had to bring them back to a better, more eternal perspective of where true wisdom is and an awareness of the coming judgment. In chapter 7, he'll begin to answer questions that they asked of him. And I think it's noteworthy that he first deals with things that he sees that need to be addressed before he goes on to address the things of which they inquired of him. But here is another matter that weighed heavy on Paul's mind and that, that he could not overlook. Whatever manifestation was already at work in Corinth or was about to show itself, the matter was lawsuits. Lawsuits among church members before what Paul describes as the unjust. They were bringing these lawsuits 
against each other, fellow church members, before the unjust judges, before the unrighteous rulers who were ruling in Corinth. Paul's language, the form of the question, clearly indicates his disapproval and moral shock and disgust at what was happening in Corinth or what was in the process of happening. Maybe he was trying to get to it before it got to the point where it actually got to the courts. But he sees it happening and he warns them, dare any of you. First, that they were suing each other at all. It troubles him that they were suing each other at all. And second, that they would entrust the arbitration of such vexing questions between fellow church members to the heathen courts, to the unjust. Why would you bring it there, Paul is saying. If you have this matter, first of all, why do you have it at all? Secondly, why are you bringing it before the unrighteous? The gospel calls the Christian to love and unity with one another, to love and unity with one another, to prefer one another, to defer and to submit to one another. Suing one another seems plainly contrary to such a calling, and Paul faithfully and boldly confronts them for it. This would seem, should be, reason and motivation enough to stop this daring disregard and this holy claim on their lives as professed Christians. That should be enough. The fact that the gospel calls them to love, unity, to defer, to one another, to submit to one another, all these one another's should play out in the Christian life in the church, and that should be enough to prevent them from going to court. And it should be enough for us. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 25. The Bible sets before us oftentimes a multitude of motivations and a multitude of reasons to behave in this way or that. Now, it's not just one motivation the Bible sets before us. It should, yes, it should be motivation enough that God calls us to love and unity, to work out these things among our brethren. But the Bible also gives us added fuel, added reasons, added motivation. If you're in Proverbs chapter 25, uh, go to verse 8. He says, Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor, and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. So what is part of the motivation here? is if you go to court with somebody and you end up losing, or even if whatever the debate was becomes public, it would be a shame to you. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A good reputation is something to be guarded. But you're putting your reputation at risk when you go to court over a matter that's going to reflect badly on you in the end. Rather, the prescription is much the same. Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another. Oh, brethren, how we need to hear that, don't we? If we have a dispute with one another, go to him. 
not to everybody else. Go to him. Debate your case with him. Don't reveal what you talked about with him, her, Sally, Bob, and Joe. That's a matter between you. Endeavor to settle it among yourselves. We heard last week out of Matthew 18, sometimes those issues go beyond that. But that is the first and foremost place, and that's where we ought to begin. Turn with me back also to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 to the Sermon on the Mount. We saw one added motivation, why we shouldn't be quickly running to court, why we shouldn't quickly be running to court, especially among brothers. But there's a multitude of motivations. One, our shame and reputation, our, bring shame on ourselves and ruin our reputation. Matthew chapter 5, look with me at verse 23. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer the gift. We seem to hear the same prescription over and over in Scripture. Work that out between yourselves. Now, notice verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The old King James, the uttermost farthing. So another motivation not to run hastily to court is what? It's going to drain you of your resources. It is going to cost you practically and financially. Why would you want to rush in to a lawsuit like that? The adversary here may well be an ungodly man who is trying to bring you to court. Even with him, we should endeavor to work out an amicable arrangement and solution before it ever gets to that point. For the glory of God and for the keeping of your wallet, and for the good of your reputation, and how much more when it's between brothers in the church of Christ. How much more when it's between brothers in the church of Christ. Having seen then something of the daring disregard these Corinthians were having uh, for the principles of love and unity among themselves, we see, secondly, a deliberate diplomacy a deliberate diplomacy is set before us. Look with me at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, <clears throat> are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more, how much more things that pertain to this life? I think the average Christian still reads these verses and soberly reflects, we are going to judge the world? We are going to be called upon to judge angels? What does that mean? What does that look like? What is, what, how, how am I going to be able to judge angels? Well, I don't want to avoid the question, 
but neither do I want to speculate beyond the limited revelation that the scriptures give us on this subject. We read plainly that all judgment is given unto the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. All judgment is given unto him. Now, at some point we could say, well, good. All judgment is his to make and not mine. I'm not going to be called upon. But if we're called upon, we're going to do so in some way subservient to him, administrating his rule and his reign and his judgment. And we're going to be called upon in some way to carry out, perhaps making some judgment and ruling, perhaps just carrying out what Christ says. We read that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We all must appear there. So whatever role then we have, it must be administrative in some sort, under the rule of the king of kings. But whatever function it is will involve the judicious exercise of making and passing some form of judgment. God is going to call upon us, apparently from these words, to pass some kind of judgment, to make some kind of ruling. But I would hasten to add that the glory and clarity of that great and final day will be such as to keep us from erring in our judgments, to keep us from erring in our judgments. We're not going to come there all by ourselves, as ignorant as we are now, to pass judgments over angels and men. Uh, look with me back in Luke chapter 22, one of the few passages that hint at what this day might be like and involve. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. We jump in there now. There was also a dispute among them. Seems to be a theme today. There's a dispute even among brethren, even among the disciples, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Now, let's garner a few things right here. First of all, for the time present, this day of judging of angels and of judging of men is not yet. It's coming, and he's going to argue from the greater to the lesser. He's arguing from that greater day when we shall be entrusted with judgments to the lesser, but all the while we need to bear this in mind as well, that we're to be as our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the days of his flesh was among us as one who served. The disciple is not above his master, we're not going to be exercising lordship in the kingdom of God here and now over men. We are going to be those who serve. 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, 
and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that reference might be even more obscure, but it also points to a day when, in God's good timing and providence, we will be among those who sit and judge over others. But not for now. But he argues from that. Paul, back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, argues from the fact that that day is coming. God has seen fit to entrust those judgments to you on that day, arguing from that greater to this lesser. Then how much more ought you be making judgments about this life? How much more ought you be able to judge over things in this life? Arguing from the greater to the lesser. If you are going to do that greater thing, certainly you are called to do this lesser thing, to settle disputes among your brethren in the church. Let's go back to the verses. Verse 4. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Now, to some degree... They were trying to do this, to carry this out in the church in Corinth. But what they had done is said, well, let's just let so-and-so decide that matter. But it's somebody in the church who's perhaps a neophyte, perhaps a young believer, perhaps just not very wise and experienced in the world and doesn't have a good uh, modus of judgment to put him in that position of making that determination He says, that's foolish. That's foolish to put that kind of person in that position. I say this to your shame. He says, I say this to your shame, verse 5. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? So the first prescription is this. Settle that matter between you two brothers. Settle that matter before it gets out of hand. But if it gets to the point where it's contentious, uh, both sides have good arguments, we really can't settle it, then yes, we can bring it before the church and somehow settle that matter. Paul's, uh, but to do so, and I believe as you look at this passage, we nowhere else read of such a thing in the church. That this kind of, Uh, committee, this kind of arrangement, this kind of judicial proceeding in the church should be ad hoc. What do I mean by that? It should be as the occasion demands. It's not something we set up and establish at the beginning of the year. We say, okay, we're going to elect four men and they're going to be our judges if any kind of dispute comes up during the course of the year. I don't believe we have a standing committee or a standing a group of men. But if a case comes up, then we would have to get together as a church, decide on what the rules of the game will be, decide what the judgment would be, and decide who is going to make that ruling. Now, that might sound pretty strange to us and to our ears because you've probably never seen that done in a church, right? But it was a little more common in those days because the Jews would judge among themselves their own cases. They wouldn't be bringing them to the Roman courts. They would, for the most part, judge those matters among themselves. And that pattern, Paul says, should carry over to us as well. 
But what was happening there? They were trying to work it out, but they were putting men in place who weren't the best, uh, weren't the best suited to carry out that judgment. Now, if you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul was speaking to them about how they had thought they'd arrived at this place of the Christian life, that they were ruling as kings. And Paul goes through this litany to show that if you're the kings and we're the apostles, God has put us last. We've suffered this, that, and the other thing. And he says, I do not say this to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He was warning them, don't think too highly of yourselves, because even us apostles have had to go through all this suffering in the footsteps of our master. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame that things have gotten so out of hand in the church that you have lawsuits, first of all. Secondly, that you put in place those who are not really well qualified to pass those judgments. Well, that leads us in the third place to a deceptive deficiency, a deceptive deficiency among them. If you jump down to verse 9, I pick up that word deceptive from what he says here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Somehow they were in danger of being deceived over this matter. Now back up to verse 6. He says, but brother goes to law against brother and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. I don't really like that translation, cheat, because it, it, it doesn't carry enough weight of what's really going on between these brothers. I think the old King James uses the word defraud. Some of your translations will have defraud or swindle. And that's kind of the idea here, that they are taking something from someone else by trickery, by force, by threatening. They're threatening, perhaps, to take them to law and somehow trying to get their rights satisfied trying to get something out of them. They're defrauding one another. They're cheating them out of something that is lawfully theirs. So that's what he's warning them about. There's a fault with you that this is even going on. Why do you not suffer yourself to be the one who's defrauded and cheated? Did not our Lord suffer many a things? Did not the apostles suffer many a things when they could have appealed further? So the idea here is a cheating them out of something, swindling them out of something that would be rightfully theirs, to withhold, divert, and divest from someone something that they're entitled to. The word will be used in chapter 7 to refer to those who withhold physical intimacy in marriage. You're defrauding each other by withholding physical intimacy in marriage. They have the just right. Your body is not your own when you come together in 
one flesh union in marriage. We read our Lord's words, If any man sue you for your coat, give to him your cloak also. You'll remember that from the Sermon on the Mount. If any man sue you for your coat, give to him your cloak also. And we are often quick to mitigate, to lessen, to soften the searching conviction of those words by saying, well, this has special reference to the oppression of the Romans over the people. And when the Roman rulers, soldiers, and whatnot would try to take away their coat, the the Christian response would be, give him your cloak also. Well, that might be part of what was going on, but there's an underlying principle there, isn't there? There's an underlying principle there. If someone tries to defraud you of that which is rightfully yours, you can go above and beyond that even and give him your cloak also. That's the underlying principle. Certainly the underlying principle applies more broadly to our suffering injustices in private matters and that between one another in the church. And that between one another in the church. Entrust your matters to God And at the end of the day, if that good brother is a true Christian, God will convict his conscience and perhaps he'll repent and give you back that which he defrauded you out of, or at least repent of the thing that he did. So suffer yourselves in some measure to be defrauded. That brings us in the fourth place to a dreadful declaration. A dreadful declaration, or we might say a dire declaration, a doleful declaration, a disconcerting, a disturbing declaration. Any and all of these words would fit the bill, and yet none of them is really strong enough to convey what the apostle says to them next. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It's just a straight-up, matter-of-fact statement, a dreadful declaration. These people, these people who live and practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that should strike the fear of God in us, right? That should strike the fear in God in any of us. Notice here that if grace is not transformative, if grace is not transforming, if it doesn't revolutionize our moral conduct, it is not true grace at all. If, true, if there's true grace at work in your heart, it's going to so change you that there, you're going to be one of those he talks about in the next verse, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. If grace is at work, it's going to change you from what you were in all those descriptions to what you are now by the grace of God and the mercy and kindness of God. If any man be in Christ, what? Old things are passed away. He is a new creation. All things have become new. There's a transformation and a work of grace. Now let's observe quickly this list, this litany that Paul uh, notices here. 
First of all, he talks about fornicators, and it's the general word for the sexually immoral, those who practice sexual immorality outside of the bonds of marriage, and they continue in that lifestyle, they continue in those sins, and do not repent of them, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Next he says, idolaters. Idolaters shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They're worshiping a false god. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image. They're violating those commandments time and again and living and trusting in a dead stock of wood or some idol of their imagination, of their own creation. They're worshiping a false god. They shall not enter into the kingdom of God. It's a fearful thing. Adulterers shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Adulterers shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Who are these? Who are these? These who continue in such an ungodly, adulterous practice, who continue to commit adultery. Those who've repented and turned and washed and been justified, it can be said of them, such were some of you, but here it's those who continue in such a lifestyle. Now, all these things ought to sober us because we just read that we're to make judgments in this life, and we all have friends and family members who are living in these very sins, and we must be in fear for their very souls because over them it is written, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Unless, blessed unless, they repent by the grace of God. And then he goes on, he goes on, he says, my King James says, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, some translations try to combine these two categories together and say something like, nor those who abuse themselves with mankind. But they are two distinct, he's making a list, and he's saying, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. They're two different categories, but they are difficult to define, especially this first one. The first one, uh, the old King James, I believe, says the effeminate, the effeminate. And the word there is kind of the word for soft. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. It's the same word being used there. So it has the idea here of, as one commentator describes it, this is the homosexual is, who is kind of the passive one in the relationship, and the next one, the sodomite, is the more aggressive one in the relationship. Either way, these sins are condemned. Yes, here today in the city of Minneapolis, homosexuality, sodomy, is a wicked sin that will bar you from the kingdom of God and bar you from heaven for all eternity. Why do we have to say that? We have to say that again and again, for the good of their souls, because if their sins aren't seen for what they are, there will be no repentance, there will be no washing, there will be no justifying and sanctifying of their souls. But they need to be convicted first of these sins. He goes on, verse 10, nor thieves, your version might have robbers, those who literally are stealing and robbing and taking things not theirs, they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. 
Those who are running into these stores, smashing and grabbing and stealing things, I hate to say it, but they're barred from the kingdom of God unless they repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. But here's the one that pricks all of our conscience, nor the covetous, nor the covetous. That Tenth Commandment gets all of us, as Paul says, I, I thought I was a righteous man till I heard that Tenth Commandment and understood it rightly. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet all, covet all these things. The covetous who live greedily wanting, desiring, gain from something that's not lawfully theirs, the covetous shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Nor the drunkards, nor the drunkards. Here's another one we try to pass over a little bit and try to ignore in our society. But the drunkards who give themselves to drunkenness or drug abuse will not enter into the kingdom of God. Next he notes the revilers. The revilers. Who are the revilers? Here's the idea that not only are they reviling God and all things that are holy and good and righteous, but those who revile those who bear the image of God. Remember when James talks about therewith bless we God out of our mouth, and therewith curse we men. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Can a fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter? It's incongruent, inconsistent for one professing to be a Christian to so revile one of his creatures made in his own image in a, in a derogatory way that's inconsistent with that. And then the last one he mentions is extortioners, I have in my version. Some of you will have swindlers or cheats. And I think he puts this one down there last on purpose to put them back in mind of the subject matter he was dealing with to begin with. If you're trying to be an extortioner of what is not lawfully yours, defraud your brother out of what is lawfully his, swindle him out of it, cheat him out of it, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. That ought to be a sobering thing and ought to arrest any of these brethren who are having these disputes and lawsuits among themselves, that they don't take it any further, that they repent of their sins and get right with God. So there's the dreadful declaration, the dreadful declaration. We come then finally to the demonstrable deliverance the demonstrable deliverance, those wonderful words in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There might be a temptation on our part to kind of separate those things. This is what Jesus does, and this is what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation and sanctification, but I think this verse purposely bundles them all together, that the Holy Spirit is at work convicting us, bringing us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, that by his righteousness alone, we can be justified, that we can be right with God, and to show us as well that we need the cleansing, the cleansing of his blood, the washing of the water of the word, to cleanse us, to transform us. As well, what does he mean by sanctification? We're set apart for him, for his use, both definitively and progressively. Definitively, God says you're mine. 
I'm setting you apart. You're holy for myself. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is at work to work out that salvation, that we would grow in grace, we would grow in our sanctification, that we would be a different kind of people. So we often refer to this verse, don't we? We often come back to it. We often think about it, but we very, very seldom think about it in the context of a church where brothers are suing each other and that this kind of thing is going on. How can these things be, brethren? How can these things be among the justified? How can these things be among the sanctified people of God, the washed and cleansed, who are no more what they once were under those descriptions of those former verses? Well, what do we gain from this? What are some lessons and applications we can take away? I think, first of all, simply as this, is that we ought to bear with small injustices. We ought to bear with small injustices, even from our own brethren, even from our own brethren. Remember the hymn, the line in the hymn? Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Think how much our Lord Jesus Christ bears from us, and he calls upon us to be like him, to love like him, to bear with one another. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We ought to be able to bear much, brethren. Bear much, trust our matters to the Lord, and he will bring a righteous adjudication of those matters like we already hinted at. That That ought so to be among ourselves and brethren. And I'm happy to say maybe... Maybe to the glory of God, the reason we haven't seen these kind of things where it comes to the point where the church has to appoint someone to judge an issue between brothers is because we haven't done those things by the grace of God. Not only here in Providence, but where have you heard that in other churches? Thankfully, that isn't going on with any kind of regularity. Or perhaps... We just defraud our brother and walk away from the whole situation and bear our own sins. Secondly, by implication, I think we ought to bear with some injustices even from our heathen neighbors. We ought to bear from our heathen neighbors some injustices from some good matter that we might heap coals of fire upon their heads and upon their conscience. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Sorry, John, don't want to steal from your reading this afternoon, but one verse here, Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 27. Here he writes, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give you when you have it with you. If your neighbor is truly in need and comes to you looking for some kind of sustenance and you have it by the blessing of God, oh, let's not, let's not chill our hearts toward them and withhold it from them. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, verse 29, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. The reason we have neighbors living to one another, we want to help and protect each other even If our neighbor is an idolater, he's my neighbor, 
and we want to be uh, protective of one another. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. There again, leave off contention before it gets out of hand. Leave it off. Even with our ungodly neighbors, we need to bear with some injustices. Okay? Maybe it's a dispute about your boundary lines or whatever. Uh, Work those things out. Work those things out before it has to come to a court situation or anything like that. Thirdly, the scriptures do not forbid our appealing, and this is an important thing to keep in mind, the scriptures do not forbid our appealing our legal rights against the abuse or misuse of governmental authority. We shouldn't take away from this, aha, I can never go to the court and try to get redress. I can never go to the court and argue my case because here Paul says, don't do it. Don't you dare do it. Well, that's a, that's a dispute among brothers. That's a dispute among neighbors and people. A civil suit, if you will. But if, if the government is somehow abusing its authority over, remember the Apostle Paul saw every good reason to claim his Roman citizenship as a safeguard against that abuse. He could say, are you going to beat one who is uncondemned and a Roman citizen? Remember that? He could appeal to that and that arrested and stopped them and said, whoa, be careful what you do for this man is a Roman. He further would make his appeal all the way up to Caesar himself. I appeal to Caesar to Caesar, he had to go. He, he brought his case all the way up, we could say, to the supreme court of the land, to Caesar himself. Now, Peter, unfortunately, would not have some of those privileges, not being a Roman citizen. But wherein God has given us certain rights, it is within our right to guard and protect those and to watch over them. <clears throat> Fourthly, Some commentators minimize the instructions of this passage as only primarily applicable to living in a heathen culture. They would say something like this, well, Paul had to give these rules and this instruction to the church in Corinth because they were a new Christian entity within an ungodly environment of the Romans ruling around them and the Greek heritage that was all around them. But once you come into a Christian commonwealth, all those rules go by the wayside, and we can take our matters one against another to court. Well, I would say no. The principle still applies. Work these things out among yourselves. Work it out in the church if need be. But the last step should ever be to bring those things, those personal civil matters, to be adjudicated in a court of law. Fifthly, with that, we, we tend to have too low a regard for the church as an institution. We have too low a regard for the church as an institution for its function as a body politic, that we can, as a body, somehow work out these kind of mundane, earthly matters, we might say. Sometimes we have too low a view of the place of the church. Such courts of arbitration should be rare 
if at all, we, we pray that we could avoid them altogether. If they come up, like I said, they should be at the occasion, on the occasion, ad hoc, not something we set in place. But nevertheless, let's not put it out of our minds that the Scripture tells us and gives us these instructions. Such adjudication should not be vested simply in the elders by reason of their office. There's a great danger, and there has been a danger throughout the years, that in the church, when these kind of areas of judgment come in, they say, well, we'll let the elders decide that. And the elders then gravitate to themselves greater authority and power that they should not have. These being matters that should be adjudicated among the brethren, and who is going to make those judgments to be decided by the whole body of the church. And this should never be seen as a primary function of the church. It should never be seen as a primary. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, the last passage we'll turn to, I think. Luke chapter 12. These kind of things are never the primary function of the church. Even our Lord dissuaded from these things. Verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now this, this, this man was agitated. Jesus is teaching these things, and all that he has on his mind, his mind is so charged with the fact that we've got this inheritance, my brother and I, but he's grabbing hold of the whole of it. He's trying to hold on to all of it or to a greater portion of it, or whatever the issue was, and he appeals to the Lord, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? That's not my role and function here. That's not why I came. I came to redeem, to set an example, and to die on behalf of my people, not to set up an earthly kingdom, not to become a judge over men's matters. That's not why I'm here. And then he goes to the very root of the man's issue. But he said to them, said to, yeah, to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Now, we need to be slow of making that kind of assessment and a judgment about somebody. But our Lord Jesus Christ could put his finger on what was really agitating this man. He wanted. He wanted stuff. He was covetous at heart, and he wanted the Lord to be the one who got him what he wanted. Never use the Lord, never use religion as a means of gain. And it should never be so abused or used in the church of Christ. Sixthly, the need for these warnings and these instructions reveal the underlying propensity we have for our own needs and our own comforts and our own covetousness to cover it over. It should underlie the fact, the reason that this has to even be given, that this instruction has to be given and recorded by the Holy Spirit, not only for the church in Corinth, but for all the people of God throughout the ages is the fact that we have this propensity, we have this disposition to want to guard and keep and take what perhaps is not even ours rightfully, 
or to keep and guard that in some way. So it should push, put its finger on our heart. Am I covetous at heart? Why am I doing this? Why is there this strife? Why is there? Seventhly and finally, we kind of hinted at this already. Definitive sanctification, that work of the Spirit of God that sets us apart for the Lord, does and must prove and demonstrate itself in practical sanctification. There must be growing in grace. There must be a working out. There must be a way that the Holy Spirit can say over thus, thus what? That was what you were. Those kind of things and descriptions are what you were in the past, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All glory and praise be to such a merciful God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, even this passage, rich as it is with instruction, searching as it is of our hearts. Lord God, we pray that we would not walk away and dismiss these things. We would take them to heart and we would prove by your grace to be your people and so live for your glory and so overcome evil with good. Oh, Father, that it might be a means of grace to friend, to family, to neighbor, and to one another in the body of Christ here. To your glory and honor, we pray. Seal these things to our hearts to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.